time to hate watch with us. Woo! <laughs> you have done that for the last three episodes, which <laughs> basically qualifies you as a woo girl. Oh, no. <laughs> no! I told you that I went out with a woo girl for the first time last week, right? You did go out with a woo girl. Mm-hmm. For those of you out there who have never gone out with a woo girl, keep it that way. And for those of you out there who don't know what I'm talking about when I say woo girl, drink twice. You haven't even introduced them to that game yet. Oh! Oh my god, you guys all get to drink twice again! Not today, though. We'll get there. So what are we gonna do today? Oh my god, I was just gonna ask the same thing! Oh my god, we live the same life! (laughs) So today, we have reboots and revivals, um, which was at least in part inspired by last week's discussion about Beauty and the Beast, but also there are just many revivals afoot in the media landscape. And then from there, we are going to talk about Better Call Saul. So buckle up, pals. I wanted to woo again, but I didn't. <laughs> I'm really proud of your self-restraint. <laughs> I could hear something and I wasn't sure what you were waiting for. <laughs> your judgment. That's what I was waiting for. Um, So, Kelsey, this topic was your idea. Uh, So why don't you kick us off here? All right. So reboots and revivals, I think we know what those things are, so I don't need to give a definition. But Well, let me stop you there. I'm already going to stop you before you begin. (laughs) So when I was thinking about this, I came up with, like, a lot of vocabulary. So we've got remakes, we've got reboots, we've got revivals, spinoffs, sequels, prequels, like all of these are being done simultaneously right now because there's so much original property that's having things done with it. So narrow the scope for me. I also had a similar list of things, but basically we're talking about mostly TV shows, can be movies like Beauty and the Beast, things from the recent past, I would say, not like way, way back, because I think things have always been redone to a certain extent, like 50 years later, but things that are very recent that are either recently canceled TV shows that are being brought back on other networks or reboots of beloved, like, classic shows from a few years ago, recent classics. In my mind in particular is the Gilmore Girls reboot, Revival. I don't even know, are those words interchangeable? What do we think? They are not. I learned this. Um, oh, actually... I actually know why this is true. <laughs> oh, really? It just came to my brain. Yeah, tell me more. Okay, so what I was going to say, I learned this when we were preparing for the Beauty and the Beast episode. A reboot is um, basically most superhero movies. It's starting from the beginning of the original property and completely redoing it. Yeah. A revival is picking up where you left off. Yep. So I think in recent times the first time in a tv property that this was like a bfd um was arrested development season four that netflix brought back a few years ago before that there was this time of like the internet was there and there was a lot of fans gathering on the internet to do like save our show campaigns but they didn't really go anywhere which again was mostly centered around arrested development i think a couple other shows did it but arrested development like was famous for their Save Our Show movement. Yeah, so I think Netflix, as a smart, smart company, um, identified this need and that no one was filling it and was like, oh, we can be those guys who get to, like, swoop in, save the day, and revive, like, cult favorites. So Arrested Development, it's really what I feel like kicked off this trend, albeit in, like, a very unique way. Since then, 
like Hulu's save shows, Amazon, I think, has maybe saved shows, HBO is bringing back shows. There's no drought of revivals <laughs> in our media landscape. Like you were saying, there are maybe too many. And then I think that does span the movie landscape as well with the millions and millions of superhero movie reboots, I would say. And then all the Disney reboots, not revivals. And I think as you alluded to, that is a long-standing tradition in cinema in different forms. It's definitely interesting to see it reviving in TV, especially as you think about TV following a similar arc as film did in terms of the industry that's a really boring end to that sentence and i meant it to be more than that (laughs) (laughs) but you know like there's the whole argument that like television is essentially 50 years behind film and so a lot of the criticism that's levied against television the same was said about film in its time it's just had 50 years to develop the art form and so there are ways in which television is catching up with that and i might argue that part of that process artistically is just leaning on previously existing properties instead of having to constantly rely on new content. I mean, do you think there's so much new content out there, though? And there's been plenty of thought pieces about, like, how many hundreds of new shows are released every season and how we can't keep up with it all. Like, do you think it's just, like, a quick fix to be like, oh, I know it's going to bring in a bunch of people to my fledgling streaming network? Or do you think there's a deeper reason why channels, particularly streaming channels, um, sort of lean on that unoriginal content? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's like a, that's a pretty complicated answer. Like, I think you could write a book about that. In terms of streaming, I think you alluded to this as well. You know, like when Netflix picked up Arrested Development, streaming services didn't have the resources so they thought, to be making original programming the way that networks are. And of course, over the years, we have now seen a shift in how streaming services are investing, and they are investing more heavily in original content. But if you have, if you are looking to start original content, it is much easier to start with a franchise that has a fan base, has anything established, has actors, a script, a plot, blah, blah, blah. Like that puts you several years of development ahead of the game. In terms of everything else, like not even thinking about it from a startup mindset, existing properties have merchandise, brand recognition, like there are marketing opportunities that bring in revenue automatically. And so, of course, that's attractive because you're not having to start that entire, what is that, like a vertical supply chain, as it were, from the ground up. That makes sense. So if we're going back to ye olde Arrested Development season four... (laughs) What do you think made that kind of tank or not tank for you? Um, I mean, one of the major challenges that show faced from the beginning that I think like really deflated a lot of the fan base going into it was the way that they had to record based on the actor schedules. Like I think most, well, maybe I won't say it that way. I came into that viewing already doubting sort of the creative vision for that season because you know, the idea of each episode being focused on one character, because that's all they could get on a film lot at one time, like already felt like a departure from the original property. And like, for me, the whole point of that revival in particular, is that I liked Arrested Development exactly how it was, and it was cut in its prime. And so if you have something that's cut in its prime, why would you want to see it changed? 
right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you like it, then clearly there's something about the art form that's working for you. And so that's what you're here for. So yeah, I, I came into that already feeling skeptical, and it definitely, to this day, is influencing my watch of it. I also think Netflix had a lot to prove at the time, and I think had a little bit of HBO syndrome, where they weren't bound by all of the traditional things that hold ca- holds cable networks back. And so they were like, we can make this as edgy as we want, and we can fuck around with format in ways that like are risky, and it's okay because... We're a streaming service and no one can tell us no. And it didn't work. It didn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, I think you're right. Like, I haven't gone back to watch that season since the first time I watched it through. And that's not an accident because I've watched the first three seasons over again since then. Yeah. But I did love in the moment and I still have an appreciation for the format of it because it was like they went from zero to 60 and went like the f- the craziest they could possibly go with their format and then reeled it back in from there. And it was fun when I was first watching it, the night it came out, I was somewhere, I don't know where I was, but I couldn't watch it from the get-go, but I ended up at a party, to a viewing party, <laughs> like a oh, nerd. I remember when this happened. Yeah, so I ended up at a viewing party like hours into the party, but it didn't matter because the second I got there, whatever episode they were on, I was just as, in theory, ahead of them. Or, you know, I was in step with them, I guess, for the most part. Because it was in, like, this cyclical, like, you can jump in at any time type of format. And I think the problem, almost, is that Netflix does present it in an order. So, like, had mm-hmm. they simultaneously said, here's this show that you can watch in any order, and here's the shuffle button. Like, that would have been cool. I fucking want the shuffle button. I don't understand why in all of the things Netflix has invested in, it has not invested in a shuffle button. There is no way I'm the first or only person to think of this. Nope. And it seems like, I know I'm new here, but it seems like of all of the things they've accomplished with their technology, that could not be the hardest thing. No, and honestly, like, that type of a platform to launch a tool like that would have been really cool from, like, a weird marketing perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my retrospective, like, dream landscape, that is what I would have liked to have seen. Mm-hmm. But obviously it was a very different show in season four, and I think everyone sort of accepted that for better or worse. Well, and it's funny because season five is in the works. They were supposed to start production this winter, right? Yeah. And I really haven't heard any buzz at all. It comes up like every now and then it like dies back down again. So I don't know. Right. Like when season four was being filmed, and I know that it's different when a revival is brand new versus when the second season of the revival is coming out. But when season four came out, so much of the fandom was like dying for leaked pictures of different actors on the set and like there was a lot of press and a lot of fan driven interest and i just i i know that the fandom was deflated from season four but it is shocking to me that netflix gave us a season five after taking a pretty long time off from season four yeah and there is so little fanfare do you think that the political climate has anything to do with the success of that show because of when it was released and the yeah. political climate when it was released. Like, is this now the time to bring it back versus when season four came back? That's an interesting question. Because when you watch seasons one through three, it's 
as clearly as listening to Green Day's American Idiot, it is a product of the Bush administration. Like, and that was the whole point of Arrested Development. Like, they are extremely heavy-handed with the Bush references, um, which makes it, like, really dated and endearing to me at the same time. I hadn't thought about season four and the fact that it came out under the Obama administration and, like, is only about the blues and has, like, no real political context. And so it is interesting to think, like, how how much material they will have if they choose to go back to their roots and go back to, like, a world of political commentary. Yeah, I mean, I think if I'm writing Arrested Development season four, five, five, five that's, like, where I'm leaning. But For sure. I feel like, though, like, you know, it's still pretty early on in the Trump administration, but my memory of the time is that the Bush administration lended itself to to humor in a way that it'll be interesting to see, like, 10 years from now if the Trump administration does. Yeah, because it was, like, a cute, innocent little humor. Yeah, it, it was a In a, a weird lot, way. <laughs> it, well, I mean, it was a lot more buffoonish. Like, even the things, like... You know, I remember watching um, the invasion of Afghanistan on cable TV, like watching the tanks like entering Afghanistan. And so like there was a lot of this apocalyptic talk and feel. But even then it was sort of surrounded by like buffoonery, like this idea that George W. Bush was like this fool, this small fool. And I don't like there's a lot of buffoonery about in Washington right now. So don't get me wrong. But The tone is different this time. Agreed. So I guess moving a little bit more recently in the revivals space, um, I just finished a little late to the party, um, the the four episode movie, Unclear, Gilmore Girls revival on Netflix as well. Um, I was late to this party because I decided a week before it came out that I had to start (laughs) from the beginning and then regretted my entire winter because I spent my entire winter watching 23 episode, <laughs> 44 minute each episode's seasons of Gilmore Girls. That was a tough sentence. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but you get what I mean. It was a lot of fucking content. That's a lot um, of content. But I did it. I wanted to do it because I'd only ever really watched Gilmore Girls on ABC Family out of order after school. So I remembered a lot, but I didn't have, like, a chronological memory of it. So I really wanted to watch it from start to finish, so then I'd be ready to go for the revival. People had a lot of mixed feelings about that revival as well. I think structurally it was rough. Not rougher than Arrested Development, for sure. Really? Well, no, I mean, it was four hour and a half long episodes. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. So in terms of format, it was not more difficult, but... I, so I have never seen any of the original Gilmore Girls. I've probably seen like a couple half episodes here and there. And so I certainly haven't seen the revival, but I've certainly read my fair share at this point. Uh, so talk to me about that comparison in terms of like plot and character outcomes, because my sense is that that was a much harder watch um, than Arrested Development. It was a harder watch, but obviously an easier format. I think in terms of revival tone, it wasn't like picking up where you left off. It was like picking up in like a snow globe of like this place that you were in. Ten years. Very much more fan service It was tough to watch more because I think the audience had different relationships to those characters than they did to Arrested Development characters. The first time I watched it through, 
I related to the daughter um, because that was roughly my age. So like that was my, you know, that was my perspective. I got it. I understood it. My rewatch, I was relating to the mom because I'm a little <laughs> closer to that age. And um, I was like, your daughter's an asshole. Like I <laughs> completely, completely changed the perspective. And I was a lot more sympathetic towards the grandma. Mm. So I think that was like part of it was that when you watch the revival, you're like, okay, so now who am I? relating to because you're kind of relating to the daughter again because time has shifted so much but you don't give her the same breaks that you did as when she was supposed to be 16 yeah I mean that makes sense because a lot of the criticisms that I've read were like the show universe wants you to believe that Rory is like the most incredible human on the face of the planet and has just achieved so much and is so wonderful and like floats inches above the ground in her perfection but she very clearly is none of that, and is a giant fool instead. Right. And I had, I guess when I watched the series finale, as it were, when it was on Fox, no, not Fox, WB, maybe CW at that point, I'm not sure. It was even in like this present day viewing, I was like more hopeful for her. And it was also because she was like embarking to be on the campaign trail for, um, Barack Obama and it was like this like a little bit of a political like oh no (laughs) um (laughs) but like it wrapped it up very nicely it was very sweet it was a little emotional and then when you got to this jump it was like oh wait you've you're actually like just as a naive as you were Mm -hmm. like it doesn't feel like she learned anything or got any I don't know got any perspective from her 10 years (laughs) doing journalism it was like a little fresh, like, straight out of college person all over again. So it was like, they wanted to pick up where they left off, but everyone was too old. Yeah. So that's what they did. It was very weird. I guess, so for you having watched both, and correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, but Arrested Development was cut in its prime, and that's ultimately why it was revived, right? Is that there was a loyal fan base that felt like they were robbed of a story that still had promise and things to resolve. But Gilmore Girls actually completed itself, right? Like, yep. it, it yep. came to a natural end. And so it was revived, I guess, for nostalgia and not, like, vengeance. Right, and I was hoping that that would come up at some point because I think that's an important thing to, I guess, talk about is that I think there's more of an... I don't want to say an appetite, but I think there's more of a good reason to take... Something that was cut short that didn't get a chance to tell its full story mm-hmm. and revive that versus revive something that's already completed its story because then they're like fishing for material and they're starting from scratch in a way. Well, I think Gilmore Girls must be a good sacrificial lamb for it because they attempted to pick up a story that ended and it it sounds like in picking up where they left off, they literally picked up where they left off. Like they don't show any development of the characters in between. Because whatever they would have developed in the time between the two series didn't matter because it was no longer a point of conflict in the story when the story ended. Right. Right? Like, narrative development only happens if there's conflict. And if something comes to a natural end, then what's the conflict between the ending and the new start? Right. So I think what they actually did do well with a limited run and I understand why they did they structured the show the way the way they did because of um actor availability like you were talking about um they did like a full year in the life was like the premise so each 
movie was a season. So a season of the show was a lot less time that it would, you know, that it would cover. But for this reboot, they covered character growth in a very sort of like some in some ways better than others, but like in a natural way throughout a year. Mm-hmm. So it was nice with restricted um, timing and I'm sure availability to be able to like cover that ground and actually show character development versus having, you know, like what, six months covered like in laborious like detail that was unnecessary. So I guess my question looking at that is like a pros and cons list. My question is like, what is the value beyond, you know, having easy an easy franchise in terms of like future marketing and merchandising in cases where you have things that you can sell so what's the value besides the branding aspect and the nostalgia aspect like what are you getting out of the story and the content at that point i mean i think it is the nostalgia factor i'm not sure how much goes beyond that on the netflix side of things i think they're probably capturing a ton of creepy data <laughs> and being like, ooh, who watched Gilmore Girls? I wonder what else I could make that they would like. So in that weird way, um, I think it helps. And I think like the, it gives them a nice PR bump every once in a while, honestly, because a lot of their original shows are not getting the widespread PR that like this revival did. What about for the the writers and the actors, though? Like, I mean, obviously, they're in it for a paycheck. Like, let's not pretend that artistic integrity is not something it isn't. But that was a lot of words. Um But, you know, what's in it for them to come back to stories and characters that they've put behind them that were resolved? Like, again, for Arrested Development, and I have questions about this too, but like, they were cut off of something they were invested in unexpectedly. But the people of Gilmore Girls knew that was coming to an end. So like, for the writers, especially having put that story to bed, what's in it for them? That's an interesting one, because for Gilmore Girls, the original creator and writer of the show left for the seventh season Mm. so they didn't feel like they personally got to tell their side of the story interesting and end it the way they wanted to so for i don't know all the like juicy details of that but that was the reason why season no not season seven revival (laughs) revival year um, happened (laughs) it was like Um, the redemption story yeah and i mean there's a lot of criticism of that but i think I mean, there were some things, like, that they were able to develop new stories about, and I think they did get to enrich a lot of things. Um, The grandparents are always a big piece of that story from the get-go, and the guy who played the grandfather died, like, in that time frame where it was off the air. So they used that as, like, a big storyline for the grandma that was, like, the sweetest thing I've ever seen in some ways because I love her. And they got to show her, like, not being his wife anymore and being like, what does that mean for me? Um, And that's not a story that you see very often. So -hmm. that was interesting. Um, And I think they got some, you know, they got some good material out of that. And they showed how, like, at the end of the day, it was about the three women in that family. Mm -hmm. So I think, like, obviously unfortunate circumstances, but um, I think they they could have written that, too. You know what I mean? It didn't have to be real. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think, like, that was a value add that the original series finale did not have. But again, it it just serves as fan service. Like, it's, yes. it's really just circle jerking. And at the same time, like, they bring someone back, and I'm, like, a little, like, dusty in the room, and I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> 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 So, like, it works. It's effective. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. I My question on the other end of it, so, like, we have an example... 
of a story that was revived just for fan service that really didn't need it. And like Arrested Development was revived for fan service, but they never got to resolve their story. And I think there's questions as to how effectively season four and presumably season five actually like resolved that story. Yeah. And so like, you know, the obvious value add there is that this the story gets to be revolved or revolved resolved but i guess i'm thinking about other shows um the one that i have always held near and dear that i think was cut in its prime was flash forward which was an abc drama that only made it one season and really deserved a second season it's you know a big boom crash fire drama a like apocalyptic government conspiracy basically anyway like it's sad to see those stories come to an end but like life very much moves on without it. And then, like, if you are not living that show week to week and, like, in it in real time, I think some of your need to stay connected to the story diminishes. So then years down the road, what is the real value of reviving that story and trying to finish it? Especially if people and the world and the global climate and whatever is changing in the meantime. Well, I mean, maybe there's, like, a a line in time where, like, before this line, something could realistically be revived that people, in a way that's, like, linear, people would be like, oh, I'm gonna pick up exactly where I left off. Mm -hmm. Versus where you get the Gilmore Girls revival that, it's like, ten years have gone by. I don't really remember what the hell happened unless I want to go back and rewatch it all. Right. So we're just gonna give you this, like, like I said, like, a little nicely tied up package of like, here's remember these feelings that you had 10 years ago when you watched this show. And that's pretty much it. I mean, maybe there's a a timeline that makes sense. Maybe it's, I think it's a fair question. I don't know if I have a good answer for you. (laughs) But like, it seems like there would be a maximization point where like, I'm thinking a little bit actually of um, Glenn Weldon from Pop Culture Happy Hour and his nostalgia bell curve. Right. Which he has on Twitter if y'all want to like look this up. But it's essentially like, a graph that shows time on one axis and nostalgia on the other, and then it's a bell curve. And the point of it is that there are peak times at which a product or a property or whatever is going to have nostalgic value that will make it sellable again. And so I guess, like, what I'm taking away from this is that that is true. Like, there is only so much time for any given property that can go in between revivals, But it also sounds like some things just maybe shouldn't be revived. Like, maybe networks need to make their peace with letting some stories die. Right. And I mean, like, some of it is, like, what the base audience was or what the audience became, right? Like, Arrested Development didn't have an audience and that's why it got shut down. But then it became this, like, cult favorite, in which case it makes perfect sense to bring it back. Versus, like, I haven't seen a big following or call for a flash forward reboot. <laughs> right? So that's there, part of it. Yeah. I mean, there was a teeny tiny cult audience at the time that it was announced that it was canceled that like mobilized on the internet, but right, right. it was nothing like the Arrested Development crowd for sure. Like when Arrested Development was on the air, I was nowhere close to watching it, but I nor was I even really aware that it existed. Um, but I certainly was aware once the cancellation announcement was public and the internet blew the fuck up. Like that was when I became aware of Arrested Development. I didn't watch it for another year or two after it had officially been canceled because that's when it finally hit Netflix. But on to your point, is there a show in mind that you would never want to be rebooted? Well, rebooted or revived because reboots are their own special like hell landscape. There is a lot 
Like, let's say let's say revive for okay. the sake of. Okay, I was going to say there is a tremendous amount that I do not want to see rebooted. Let's say revive. Well, honestly, like to your point about time and like the point I was making earlier about like having distance from a property, I wouldn't watch a flash forward season two. I probably would. I would not be happy about it. It would be much more of a hate watch than it already is. And I would probably give up partway through. I mean, to me, my point is, like, I don't think I would want something that feels complete to get revived. No. So, like, Friday Night Lights is a good example oh, of, like, true. a beloved show that has a huge cult following. And there's always little, like, whispers of, like, will we get a revival? And, like, that's my worst nightmare because it's perfect. And it, I just don't want anyone to touch it, ever. The mm-hmm. only thing I've ever thought about that a lot of people besides me have is, like, they want the Eric and Tammy, like, prequel. Yeah. Which is fine, but it's not the same people, and then you're not getting the same chemistry, and then what's the point? Right. I actually just about universally hate prequels. Do you? I do. Be- like, I understand why people want them, and I understand the attraction of them. I am, as you're saying, like... Because it's a history before the story that you're invested in, I don't care. Like, I don't want that backstory. Any schmuck can write that fan fiction. That's true. And I know we're going to get into that momentarily, but I want to give you my hot take about um, revivals first. Yes, please. I've been leading you on with this. Wait, first of all, I have two things that I need you to know are in the works for being revived or have been revived. Oh, Lord. One is the Magic School Bus. Oh, I saw that, actually. Coming to Netflix, TBD. Yep. The second one is Tangled. Yeah, I saw that, too. (laughs) I figured it was only a matter of time. Yeah. Um, Disney has always had a tendency to create TV shows out of its movies, and they've usually just been, like, Disney Channel originals, and so I, I figured that that was coming. Seems like it took longer than I was expecting, though. It did. It did. Um, so I just had to leave you with those, but also my take... I feel like Parks and Rec season seven is a revival and not a linear season seven. That makes sense. That makes sense. I just finished a rewatch of Parks and Rec, and I've always felt since it aired that the season six finale, I would be so happy with that just being the series finale because it's perfect. It's the Unity concert. Everyone's happy. Everyone's like, you know... There's some, like, resolution to it. Yep. And it feels like a natural end point. And, like, your story's been told. It's great. It's beautiful. And season seven was a shortened season. It's a flash forward three gears. It's great, but it feels like its own package of episodes. It doesn't feel the same as the original, and it feels very heavy on the fan service. And so when I was watching it, I was like, this really feels like a Netflix revival, and it doesn't feel like... Like The Office's final season did, for example. Yeah, it's really funny to hear you say that because I've had this argument with a lot of people who did not like the last season of Parks and Rec. And I think you remember from watching it live with me that I had the same reaction to the end of um, season six and that the season six finale was like a beautiful packaging. And I have a lot of anxiety about last seasons in general. um, And I think the last couple seasons of The Office, like, stand as reason enough why. (laughs) I was like, shut it down! Shut it down! (laughs) And so I had a tremendous amount of anxiety going into season seven of Parks and Rec. And so when I have this conversation with people, it always comes up that it's totally, completely different. And my argument is, like, 
well, that was because they knew they had one more season to say goodbye. Like, they were putting it to bed. And in every episode, you see them saying goodbye. And, like, it's very much a victory lap and, like, a warm hug. Or, like, a sob fest. Yeah, that too. But, you know, to hear you frame it as, like, its own uh, linear revival, I think, makes a tremendous amount of sense. And, like, not only justifies the tonal shift, but I think in some ways, whether or not you meant it to, like, justifies mistakes like the Gilmore Girls revival. Right. I mean, I was watching them in tandem, so that's why it was top of mind. But I was, like, sitting there and I was like, this literally could have been made three years later. And it could have been, like, the natural (laughs) progression of this story when they got a little bit of money to do another couple episodes. I think the difference with Parks and Rec versus maybe a Gilmore Girls, um is that because it was the immediate next season, I think, like, having some closeness to the story and some closeness to fans' reactions, like, you know, it's a world of instant gratification and television is at the epicenter of it. And so I think, like, being in the middle of that and then getting to do your victory lap creates a very different product than having, what was it, like, 10 years between the oh, more yeah. girl seasons? Yeah. Where, like a lot of thoughts and feelings and buzz, for lack of a better word, have all been put to bed. I agree. And that's, a, for what it's worth, that's a show I also really can't emotionally handle being revived ever. What, Parks and Rec? Yeah. Dear Lord, no. I, if that happens, <laughs> we are not only going to organize a letter writing campaign on this show, but I personally, mark my words, will be sleeping outside of NBC Studios. <laughs> With a picket sign. And I don't know what it's going to say, but it is going to be snappy. It'll just have a picture of little Sebastian. (laughs) It'll say, President little Sebastian does not believe in you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. You know what what I'll do? I'll send every exec who gave the green light a poison calzone. Ooh. Ooh. Anyway. (laughs) Not speaking of poison calzones, no. we're going to move on. <laughs> if you have any thoughts or feelings about reboots and revivals and you want to get those in before we distract you with more thoughts, feel free to hit us on Twitter at HateWatchWithUs or send us your dissertation at our Gmail account, which is HateWatchWithUs at gmail.com. Kirstie will be reading that. I will not. <laughs> Give me the so, cliff notes on Twitter. Little please. bit of trivia. Kirstie and Kelsey trivia, there was a period of time where we moderated a subreddit called Thesis Ideas. And <laughs> <laughs> I haven't checked in several years, but the last time I checked, it still existed. And we were finally getting traffic that wasn't spam. Like some physicist like actually posted a thesis idea. We were just trying to help the poor college kids who didn't have ideas with all of our brilliant ideas. <laughs> Yeah, really, we were, it was all about, like, delusions of grandeur and all of the wonderful media studies we were never going to do. Instead, they've ended up on this podcast, so I apologize to everyone. (laughs) And that has been our origin story. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to reboot it next week, don't worry. (laughs) Uh, Well, so at the top of this show, we talked about some vocabulary, and one of those words was spinoff. And so we are less than coincidentally bringing forth a spinoff for discussion this evening. And that spinoff is Better Call Saul, which uh, 
is a derivative of Breaking Bad, um, which was the AMC prestige drama about meth. Not the HGTV prestige drama? It was not the HGTV prestige tiny houses. They're often confused. (laughs) So much prestige to go around. In a Venn diagram of like Breaking Bad and Tiny House Hunters, that overlapping section right there is either the tiny house that Walter White would have cooked meth in or the tiny house hunter purchaser who would have bought the RV that Walter White was cooking meth in. Oh, yeah. Or the cabin in New Hampshire, which you may not have ever gotten to. Oh, I did. Because, so I mean, this ties in in terms of history with the original property. I have seen, the I think, the first three seasons of Breaking Bad. It might be the first two and a half seasons. And then I saw all of the last season as it was airing live. Um, My husband is super into Breaking Bad, and so he was watching it live when it happened. And so I watched that whole last season with him. How are you watching live without cable? That was when we were still living with our parents. Um, And so my mom had cable, and we were usually watching it at my mom's house. Oh, got it. That millennial life. That millennial life. Yeah, so, uh, so Better Call Saul follows the misadventures of Saul. Saul Goodman? Jimmy McGill. So I have a lot of questions here. I don't, you, I, I'm flustered. So I. <laughs> How can I help you? I have a deep knowledge of both of these series. I don't. So I've seen all of season one of Better Call Saul. And like, obviously have a spotty history with Breaking Bad. And I, I know that this is the same human, Saul. Yeah. But, like, the narrative structure of this first season has so far done nothing to help me understand why or how. And then, like, I, I'm a cynical human by nature, and spinoffs really raise red flags for me. And so all I want to know is, like, why is this person the one that was worthy of the spinoff? Like, why do we care about him enough to get this much backstory And, like, is this all leading towards the point at which the show universes converge? And, like, will they converge in a meaningful way? Or is that the end of the show? Or, like, what is the point of his backstory running eventually in parallel to Breaking Bad? And why have they not explained yet how he ends up becoming Saul Goodman if his name is not that? All right, so let me take a step back. Yes. Saul was obviously one of the more beloved characters of Breaking Bad and one of the only pieces of comic relief on that show on a regular basis. So And he was good on that show. He was great. So it seems like Vince Gilligan kind of like gets off on these stories of like your average man's like demise mm-hmm. a little bit or like turn towards you know breaking bad. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's doing here yeah, in Speaking the same of way. delusions of grandeur. Right. I think he's a he's very good at what he does for what that's worth. So in that vein, you know the end of Saul, to some extent, maybe, I think you do. Um, I don't remember. <laughs> basically, he... he gets run out of town and, like, goes into hiding and you never see him again at the very end. Okay. Um, Does he, he Is he implicated with uh, Walter at that point? Yeah, like, he has to change his identity Okay. And, and move. And he ends up where this show picks up very quickly in a flash forward, working in a, like, a mall store. Uh-huh. What was is it a Cinnabon? Cinnabon? Yeah. Um, in, like, Nebraska. Okay. I mean, I understand foreshadowing enough to understand that the way they positioned the opening of the pilot was clearly where the show would end at some point. Right. Or maybe not clearly, but that was my assumption. I didn't realize that it was known from Breaking Bad that that was where he ended. Yeah. 
It's mentioned okay. somewhere in the, that final season. But also, there's been speculation, maybe, that they would get to a certain point and then jump to that fast forward and go from there. Like they would skip the Breaking yep. Bad universe. Yep. Or maybe just like do it not to replicate scenes, but to do it from a different angle. So this is more the story of like how he becomes Saul and like the persona of Saul, not just the name. So mm-hmm. season one, I mean, I think it was clever how they did season one. They really like grabbed every Breaking Bad fan with a similar, you know, it was a little subplot, but it was tonally like something that you could grab onto and be like, oh yeah, this is familiar to me. I love it. And then they just completely spun the whole tone of the show to be like, oh, this is a lot slower paced and it's completely different. They brought back Mike, who's another like fan mm-hmm. favorite, but I thought he was a good addition. Um, he wasn't like unrealistic, I guess, to be in that universe before the days of like Walter White. And they've sort of made it into this. I've heard, I've heard a lot of people say they do a lot with like the mundane, um, Mm-hmm. And they they do a really good job of just talking about, like, his, you know, his struggle with his brother and in the law firm that he works at and, like, be feeling like he's a legitimate lawyer. And mm-hmm. as season two sort of progresses, you see him sort of taking those turns to start becoming the Saul character that you know in um, Breaking Bad and one of those, like, big... Um, sort of signature moments at the very end of the se- of season two. I'm, I'm going to spoil you, but I know you don't mind. Is he makes a a TV commercial and it's a very solid TV commercial. It's tame because it's like the first time that he's kind of being a little sketchy um, and trying to be like a TV. Oh, really? You know, a TV. Well, it's in terms of like the scale of like having a TV ad. Like he's the tone of it is a lot more like subdued than his later ads. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was going to say, like, I, I've only seen through the end of season one, but, like, he does some sketchy shit, like the billboard move and, like, I, well, right, but sketchy like, shit. But I think his advertising is, like, the thing that you're supposed to check in with and be like, okay, how, okay, like, temperature check, like, how much are you Saul right now? And as gotcha. they keep going, they're like, oh, okay, like, he does an ad that's very, like, mild-mannered, basically. Like, he's not really trying to rip anyone off. He's just yeah. like, oh, this is a demo I can grab. Yeah. I mean, it's it was definitely interesting because the last two episodes of season one, you can see that downturn happening very quickly. Like, mm-hmm. all throughout season one, there's this long push and pull where it seems like his goodwill to try to become a better human and, like, what I'm assuming is supposed to be an argument about his innate human nature, like, tugging him towards evil. And he, like, spends all this time working and working to try to, like have an honest career um and shit just continually goes awry and then by the time he gets to the finale of season one like he's basically said fuck it i'm gonna do what i want right and that's a great scene (laughs) it is a great scene (laughs) um and but i think it's like the the recurring struggle with him right um is -hmm. like between like being a good person and not being a good person but it's also like when you're watching it coming off of Breaking Bad, you're, like, looking for one thing, and it ends up showing you so many facets that you never would have known about him from the Breaking Bad world, so it's not just, like, him being, like, when I, when it first was announced, I was like, okay, so it's literally just gonna be him swindling different people, um, and, like, doing crazy shit, and really it's about, like, his relationships with people, and all these other sides of him that you don't even think about when you're watching Breaking Bad, like, oh, does he have this girlfriend? who's, like, yeah. a very adept lawyer. 
when the show is on, you know, when, when we're back in like better call Saul times, like that's a big point right. of it. Um, you know, what happens with his brother? And then it leaves you sort of questioning like, well, what does happen? Because although, you know, however long the time span is for breaking bad, which always confuses me because I think it's shorter than the show run. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite short. Yeah, I want to say so it's like, only supposed to be like a year or something. Yeah. So you have a year in his life, but you don't really know before that or after that or really some things during it. So I think it leaves a lot, you know, there's still a lot of material there to work with. I mean, it's a fantastic character story. And like our good pal Vince is obviously highly skilled in character studies. And like, clearly that's his jam is character studies and like exploring human nature. But I guess like, and like I find jimmy or saul or whoever to be like a really compelling character and so i'm super into this particular story i i find it far more compelling than breaking bad i do too and like some of that is like the pace and some of it is just like this story arc and story structure like i just think it's more interesting than like all of the weird power shit that walter white was going through at any rate i guess my question still remains like why Saul? There were lots of characters in the Breaking Bad universe that people were fascinated by and that I think could have been good character studies. But why Saul? I mean, besides the fact that you have a name of an actor, um, I think, I mean, I think you knew just enough about him and you were just curious enough in him. Like, I think Mike is the yeah. only other person you could have done and they've included him in this show. You could do Jesse, but you know so much about Jesse. Other characters, I think, are, you know, they so many get killed off. Mm-hmm. Other ones, like, I think something that I'm a little nervous about this season is that um, Gus Fring is returning, mm-hmm. uh, which makes me nervous because I think it might be like, fan service gone too far. I trust that they know what they're doing, but it does make me nervous because that wasn't... He was a fascinating character, but he's that's not why I'm watching Better Call Saul. Right. I guess, like, it seems to me that the only fan service the show tends to pay is in references, which, like, one of my husband's favorite games is to watch for all the, like, sneaky Breaking Bad references every time he announces, like, oh, drink once. Uh, so... We teased this at the beginning of the episode. The rule is drink once for references you get, drink twice for references you don't. So he always gets excited when he only has to drink once. Right. But other than, like, you know, sneaking in a name here and there and whatever, it hasn't felt like fan service. It has felt like the exploration of this character and of the themes of his life have been more captivating to the showrunners than just the fan service and the spinoff of a universe that was already created. Like what's beautiful about it that is not true of all spinoffs is that even though it takes place in the same physical place as the original show, it's not the same universe, you know, like it is the same universe, but it's not the exact same story. It's not like it's going for the same, the same themes and symbols and issues and struggles and there's not a million and a half people that are coming in and out of each show just to prove that it's the same show universe. Like What I wrote down, because we live the same lives, is stories can exist in the same universe but be told differently. Yes, thank you. That's where I was headed. <laughs> I, like, And it feels very real and tangible because that's what real life is like, right? Like, we all live in the same universe. We all have different lives. Mm-hmm. And that's what's fascinating. I agree. And also... The show is, like, visually so, so, so great, and so is Breaking Bad, but, like, I nerd out over the weird, like, 
cinematography that they do. Yeah. I Well, I also find, like, the art direction of the show to be more compelling than Breaking Bad. And, like, don't get me wrong. The art direction in Breaking Bad was, like, groundbreaking. And I'm totally here for it. That's, like, one of the reasons why I was trying so hard to get through the whole series, even though I don't love it. But I think some of the things that Better Call Saul is doing are, like, quirkier and, like, more playful. Like, I felt Breaking Bad was trying to be really serious, but also edgy and weird. And I feel like Better Call Saul is just trying to be weird. Yeah, like, I think Better Call Saul was focused on foreshadowing in weird ways with what they did. And this one is not is just, like, doing cool shit to do cool shit. Like, can we do a one for our opening that is, like, the most bananas one I've ever seen? <laughs> um, like that's cool and it's not necessarily like there's no reason why they had to do it except for the art of doing it and I think there's something to be said for that truly it's one of those things where like I can't watch the openers without thinking like how much fucking effort has gone into every single shot and like by the time the theme music is over with that weird cut I just feel exhausted and that's before like the show has even started right and then the, the music is good like it's just yeah. So great. I respect that. And like, I'm going to sound like a pretentious asshole right now, but like, maybe not every viewer is like sitting there thinking about it from a production mindset. Like, I'm I'm no film producer, but like, I had to do a couple of like five minute documentaries and it took me months. And so the idea of doing these like 30 second opens with all of the shit that they throw in there is fucking exhausting. And the fact that they can like pull me along on that journey and I get that that deep into, like, the weeds with it. with Before there's any story, before there's, like, a, an emotional tug tells me that there is something artistically that they're doing that, like, is creating some kind of emotional investment without me even knowing it. It's like they're tugging at my subconscious. Right. And um, they do have a really great companion podcast if you're into that kind of stuff. It's long. It's, like, a full hour per episode, sometimes longer. It's a little talky, a little chatty, it's a little much, but they do address all of those really nerdy things if you're into that kind of stuff. Um, it's it's interesting and you always get to learn new like things about, you know, how they shot a certain thing in that one or that I was talking about. They go over this big long big tall like toll booth, not toll booth, it was like a customs booth. Uh-huh. They go over that, they go into a garage. So now you're indoors, they go into a truck, they go out, and it's all one shot, and they talk about how they had some guy physically changing the aperture on the camera to be able to keep the, you know, like, the light, like, the same throughout, which is, like, insane. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's I watched, the kind of stuff they give you when you I watched that scene and also that. felt physically exhausted afterwards. Yeah, that was a lot. I did one long shot in college and it was literally like out of the classroom that our lecture was in and like down the hallway and I almost died. Mm-hmm. They also <laughs> do some amazing montages, especially in season two. There's like two I can think of in particular, maybe three. Um, he loves his montages, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they turn out really great because they have good music to back them up. Um, they do one where he like picks out all these crazy colored suits and he like wears them all to work um (laughs) and there's one where kim his girlfriend is calling like prospective clients and she has all these little sticky notes that she's like putting up on the window and that one's crazy and the music is awesome um so basically if you're a nerd 
The show is great, and you probably already know that. And season three starts this Monday as we're recording this, so that's why we've decided to talk about it. Yep. And Kirstie's going to totally catch up. I am. I actually can. Um, really? Because season two just appeared on Netflix this week. Perfect. Yeah, so I'll finally get there. I had watched almost all of season one, got to episode nine, and then had to go to Idaho and then put it down for like three months. And I just picked it back up and finished the season. Um, So I'm ready for season two, just as it came online. That's so great. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I think dramas, like prestige dramas are not usually my jam. I'm all about the hate watch angle. And so if I'm going to watch something that's pretending to be serious, I want it to fail at its seriousness, which is why I like me a good network drama. (laughs) So again, at the risk of sounding pretentious, like I appreciate that this is a challenging watch and it's, it's one that I'm like enjoying getting through. Whereas Breaking Bad, I sometimes felt like I was having to like force myself to hit play with a cattle prong. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, this is being made by someone who has a comedy background yeah. um, in terms of um, Bob Odenkirk. So I think yep. there is always that little like sardonic level of like, they can throw in a few more jokes than they did when some dude was making meth and had cancer. <laughs> oh, and this like reveals just how terrible my sense of humor is. But I think there were some missed opportunities there. <laughs> I mean, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, do you have any other thoughts on Better Call Saul? No, I feel like that resolves some of it. I noticed on Netflix that the screenshot that they use as the promo for season two, or not promo, but like the click-through screen for season two, already like visually feels different than season one. And like maybe it's just that one scene, but like something about it like threw me off. And so I'm, I'm, like, interested to see where I'm going because uh, the way season one ended, it was very clear that a tonal shift was coming. So, yeah, I have some renewed curiosity. I think I have struggled at times knowing who Saul is in the Breaking Bad universe. And, again, only having seen him in a few episodes because that's, you know, he had only just been introduced in season three or two or where approximately where I ended in Breaking Bad. But, like... You know, I tend to root for, like, people who are kind of bad but secretly good, and he fits into that archetype. And so, like, knowing who he is in the Breaking Bad universe, I've been, like, I don't know, uh, like, clutching my pearls, waiting to see how this all goes down. <laughs> um, so it's, like, I I am excited to start season two. I feel like I can live with this as a spinoff, where, like, usually that would not be the case. And, uh... I'm happy to have a prestige drama that doesn't make me want to punch my eyeballs out. That's so great. Yeah, it's a good place to be. I'm so glad. (laughs) It's a lot of prestige television I haven't been able to keep up with, so. Yeah, I do feel like this is one for me where I'm almost like, can we just not go to Breaking Bad World of Saul? (laughs) Yeah. I just want to live in this, like, bubble, because it's so pure. It is. It's not pure, pure, but it's, like, more pure. In a storytelling sense, I would be willing to call it pure. Yeah. It achieves a lot of the devices, narrative devices that I personally value. Exactly. So, Better Call Saul. Season 2 is on Netflix. Season 3 going live on Monday. That's Get hype, y'all. cord cutter and cable promo for this episode. <laughs> we like to cover all our bases. So if you have any lingering thoughts, feelings, or questions about Better Call Saul, feel free to contact our resident 
Breaking Bad universe expert using the Twitter account that the two of us share, which is at HateWatch with us. Or, since I am reading your dissertations, feel free to send those questions directly to Kelsey using our email address, hatewatchwithus at gmail.com. Why are you sending those to me? (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm reading the dissertations, so you have to read the Breaking Bad universe questions. (sighs) We're tag teaming our fan stuff. I thought I was just tweeting. Get you a girl who can do both. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, friends. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye.